Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of God, most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum to all of you. Um, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Um, I want to first thank uh, the organizers of this very important conference, the Beyond Institute, the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom, Jihad Turk, Munir Sheikh, thanks for having me here. I have the dubious task of being the lowly lawyer who follows two very prominent Islamic scholars. So I, I, I'm very cautious of my task. Um, the, the, the challenge um, that I'm going to be exploring, it, I, I want to, as a disclaimer, mention that it's a lawyer's diagnosis of a religio-political problem in Pakistan, and that's very important. I view this issue and this challenge through a legal lens, not necessarily uh, an Islamic scholarly lens, although there's intersections. And I'm also very honored to be back in Claremont 15 years ago, a few streets down, um, I studied at Claremont McKenna, where I started exploring some of these issues intensely before going back east for law school. And you know, I think this conference is timely because, in my estimation, the situation of religious minorities around the world, but particularly in the Middle East and South Asia, is acute. It's dire. Indeed, I would argue it's arguably one of the most perilous times ever to be a religious minority in those regions. We're seeing unprecedented levels of marginalization and violence against religious minorities. I represent many, many persecuted prisoners of conscience, refugees, hundreds from a variety of Muslim-majority countries and, and outside. Um, so I, I gauge this and I come to this problem really from a lens of advocacy, so my daily task of, of dealing with these stories. And I can tell you the numbers are staggering. The UNHCR is utterly overwhelmed with these cases to such a staggering degree that cases are backlogged for years. And a significant component of my practice really concerns refugees escaping persecution in Pakistan. And it's to Pakistan and the, and the case study of Pakistan to which I will submit my presentation here this, this morning. We, all of you have seen that we're witnessing unprecedented levels of violence against a broad array of religious minorities in Pakistan. Hundreds have been killed through premeditated mass killings, crimes against humanity. May 28, 2010, militants attacked two Ahmadi mosques in Lahore, killing 86 members of that community. April 3, 2011, they attacked a Sufi, Sufi shrine in Multan, killed 41 Sufis. March 13, 2013, 45 Shias were killed outside a mosque in Karachi. On March 13, on September 22, 2013, militants attacked a historic church in Peshawar. Uh, 85 Christians were killed that day. We saw a few weeks ago, 71 Muslims and Christians were killed on Easter Sunday in Gulshan Iqbal, a very prominent park in Lahore. And of course, hundreds have been killed in sporadic sectarian attacks across Pakistan. For example, hundreds of Hazaras, Shia, have been killed in Quetta and dozens of Ahmadis in Karachi. So, in my estimation, suffice it to say we have passed a critical tipping point in Pakistan. Sectarian violence threatens the foundation and integrity of that democracy. But my talk today analyzes the subject of blasphemy, terrorism, and identity in Pakistan. Three very much linked subjects. And I'm going to use Pakistan as a case study to, to explain this, this blend and then talk a little bit at the very end about some dramatic spillover effects in other Muslim-majority countries. But first, let me highlight an important distinction. Much of what we hear or read about in the papers, including the mass atrocities that I just mentioned, 
in Pakistan involves sectarian violence. What is that? It's intra-religious conflict between and among divisions and groups within the same faith tradition. So, for example, the militants who attack the Ahmadis, Sufis, and Shias largely belong to the Tariqe Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban, who represent a conservative or puritanical interpretation of Islam. The persecutors that, that, that in that instance were not police or government officials. They were militants who aimed to terrorize Muslim minorities who don't subscribe to a particular interpretation of Islam. This is what we understand collectively as sectarian violence. Now, there's a lot of that in the world, not just in South Asia. The human rights abuses that stem from sectarian conflict are deeply troubling and demand scrutiny. But what makes sectarian conflict ugly and truly nefarious is when governments and law enforcement permit the conflict to persist without intervention, or worse, they facilitate and encourage sectarian conflict. This is when religious repression becomes more than just about one religious group killing another religious group. It becomes about one religious group killing another group with impunity and with the explicit or implicit backing of the state and its institutions. And that is the problem that I'm tackling here. In the case of Pakistan, unlike any other Muslim-majority country in the world, the problem of sectarianism and violence against religious minorities is very much a byproduct of enabling institutions and structures. And for the past decade or so, I've really studied and examined this contention. And I see in my research that the seminal root cause in Pakistan is what I refer to as legal structures of discrimination. Legal structures of discrimination. And these structures manifest themselves in different and limited ways in other Muslim-majority countries. I see three such legal structures of discrimination in Pakistan. The first is Pakistan's current constitution, 1973. We can really convene a whole conference to analyze the contours and permutations of this very fascinating document. But what I would like to focus on is Article 260. That is the provision that defines who is or is not a Muslim for purposes of the law. It's flashed on your screen. It defines Muslim as a person who believes in the unity and oneness of Allah and the absolute and unqualified finality of the prophethood of Muhammad on whom be peace, the last of the prophets, and does not believe in or recognize as a prophet or religious reformer any person who claimed or claims to be a prophet in any sense of the word or any description whatsoever after Muhammad. And then B, which is interesting, non-Muslim means a person who is not a Muslim. Well, I hope that's what non-Muslim means in the Constitution. But this is interesting. Includes a person belonging to the Christian, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, or Parsi community, a person of the Qadiani group or the Lahori group who call themselves quote-unquote Ahmadis, or by any other name, or a Baha'i, and a person belonging to scheduled castes. So I've studied the constitution of Muslim-majority countries, and Pakistan's constitution is the only one to provide a definition of who is or is not a Muslim for purposes of the law. Several Muslim countries have general definitions of Islam being a state religion, but no constitution other than Pakistan delves into the question of a precise legal definition of a Muslim. Why is this problematic legally? 
Pakistan has built into its very core legal foundation a notion of sectarianism, division, and separation. By its very wording, one's own beliefs and profession of faith are absolutely irrelevant under the law. It doesn't matter, matter whether you self-identify as a Muslim. The state and constitution define those inner convictions for you. Of course, we have seen Ahmadis in particular bear the brunt of this legal concoction. For the very definition of Muslim circumscribes what the state believes to be a core problem with the Ahmadi faith, their purported failure to believe in the finality of Prophet Muhammad as Khatamun Nabiyyin, the seal of the prophets, the last of the prophets. Indeed, Pakistan's constitution purposefully injects religious doctrine to establish a matter of fundamental rights, one's right to profess one's faith. And to make matters worse for Ahmadis, Pakistan's second amendment to its constitution, which was passed a year later, amends this article to define Ahmadis as non-Muslim explicitly, as if there was no doubt already in the sordid legislative history of this article. But my contention is that Article 260 of Pakistan's constitution is not just problematic for Ahmadis. It is the principal legal source of sectarian conflict in Pakistan. The moment Pakistan injected a definition of Muslim in its constitution, it created and fueled an environment where Muslim groups would compete with each other to claim hegemony over Islam. It incubated sectarianism, tribalism, and interreligious violence. Indeed, most of the mass killings and atrocities committed by militants that I just mentioned were done explicitly, explicitly, in the name of preserving the integrity of Islam and the, this definition. Thus, Article 260 of Pakistan's constitution is the first stain on Pakistan's constitutional democracy. The second structure of legal discrimination is, in Pakistan is its, prim, its criminal penal code. Pakistan uses its criminal code to prohibit and punish blasphemy. Blasphemy in Pakistan broadly refers to any spoken or written representation that directly or indirectly outrages the religious sentiments of Muslims. Five of these laws specifically are called the anti-blasphemy laws, and over the past 30 years, over 1,300 people have been prosecuted and arrested under these laws. Interestingly enough, the bare majority of arrests are of Sunnis, but 40% of all arrests are of Ahmadis and the rest Christian. What are the crimes? The crimes range from wearing an Islamic slogan on a t-shirt, planning to build a mosque and calling your house of worship a mosque, distributing Islamic literature in a public square, or offering prayers at a mosque, or printing a wedding invitation card with Quranic verses on it, or sending a text message that's perceived as critical of Islam. The punishments range from fines to indefinite detention to three years of imprisonment to capital punishment. And no one has been executed to date under this law, but at least 51 people accused of blasphemy were killed before their trials were over. And these laws continue in full force and effect. The most notorious of these laws, and Arafat Mazar will have a presentation this afternoon, I'm sure we'll cover this in detail, is a 50-word penal code provision, section 295C. Whoever by words, either spoken or written or by visible representation or by any imputation, innuendo, or insinuation directly or indirectly defiles the sacred name of the Prophet Muhammad on whom be peace shall be punished with death or imprisonment of life 
and shall also be liable for a fine. Based on this remarkably broad language, virtually anyone can register a blasphemy case against anyone else in Pakistan, and the accused can face capital punishment. And these laws have particularly, two of them are called Ordinance 20. They specifically target by name. The vast majority of arrests are under these two, Section 298B and C, called Ordinance 20, of the Ahmadi community, the anti-Ahmadi laws. For fear of being charged, and I'm quoting the statute, indirectly or directly posing as a Muslim, Ahmadis cannot profess their faith, either verbally or in writing. Pakistani police have destroyed Ahmadi translations of the Quran, banned Ahmadi publications, the use of any Islamic terminology on wedding invitation, in invitations, the offering of Ahmadi funeral prayers, the displaying of the kalima on their, on their gravestones. In addition, Ordinance 20 prohibits Ahmadis from declaring their faith publicly, propagating their faith, building mosques, or making the call for Muslim prayers. I said salam. For an Ahmadi, that would be an arrestable offense in Pakistan. There are many cases where the use of the word salam, assalamu alaikum, is an arrestable offense. Now, these cases are real, and I've seen a lot of them, actually dozens of them in the past few years, not just of Ahmadis. An 81-year-old optician, Abdul Shakur, a few months ago was brought up on terrorism and blasphemy charges. Now, keep in mind, this is a regime, Pakistan, where... There has been a, a renewed emphasis to try to crack down on this law after the 132 school children were massacred in 2014. But in spite of that, he was brought up on charges because he had Amity literature in his shop. He's been convicted of an eight-year prison sentence, five years for terrorism, three years for blasphemy, 150,000 rupee fine. His case is right now currently in the Lahore High Court pending appeal. A few years ago, a 72-year-old British-Pakistani dual citizen, Dr. Masood, a homeopathic physician who spent over two months in a Lahore prison on a charge of blasphemy. His crime, he recited the verse of the Quran during a session with his patients. He recited Surah Al-Fatiha as a source of healing for this patient, and that's his crime. Elderly Amity women, Amity mothers, even Amity babies have fallen victims to these laws. And interestingly enough, legally, these laws have withstood scrutiny just a few years after the laws were passed, a federal Sharia court was asked to exercise its jurisdiction and to hold whether Ordinance 20 was repugnant to Islam. It upheld it, saying that Ahmadis were merely prohibited from calling themselves what they're not. In 1993, the Supreme Court of Pakistan dismissed eight appeals brought by Ahmadis who were arrested under Ordinance 20 and 295C. The collective case is known as Zahiruddin versus State was that the ordinance violated the constitutional rights of religious minorities. The court dismissed the complaint on two grounds, highest court in Pakistan. First, the court held that Ahmadi religious practice, however peaceful, angered and offended the Sunni majority. So to maintain law and order, Pakistan would therefore need to control Ahmadi religious practice. And second, Ahmadis, and this is interesting, as non-Muslims could not use Islamic epithets like salam without violating company and trademark laws. Just like Coca-Cola has a right to its patented formula, Amadis, uh, Pakistan has a right to salam as a matter of trademark law. The court reasoned they had a right to protect the sanctity of religious terms, and this remarkable ruling further entrenched these ordinances. In light of these twin decisions by the highest judicial bodies in Pakistan, the laws remain a legitimate state-approved instrument for persecution and marginalization of religious minorities and legal recourse seems dubious. 
Of course, the Christian community has been terribly, terribly affected by this. Over 100 Christians have been arrested. The blasphemy charges against Christians generate sectarian strife. Dozens have fallen victim to mob violence. Um, in Godra and Kasur, there were Christians who were burned alive because they were facing these charges. We know about the case of Asya Bibi, who remains on death row. And several Christians uh, have been indefinitely detained. The third legal structure of discrimination that I see is Pakistan's governmental forms, particularly the forms to cast one's vote and to obtain a passport or national ID card. The first issue concerns the right to vote in Pakistan. From 1978 to 2002, Pakistan employed a separate electorate system that put non-Muslims and Ahmadis on a separate voting list. In February of 2002, President Musharraf passed an Executive Order 7 that eliminated the separate electorate system, reinstated a joint system. Everyone can vote the same as equal citizens. But four months later, he passed an order saying that except Ahmadis. So the order wouldn't, or the order wouldn't apply to Ahmadis. So what's happened is that in order for Ahmadis to vote, they must declare themselves to be non-Muslim, declare their founder to be an imposter, and add their names to a supplementary list. Of course, no Amadi would do that in good conscience, so therefore there is no voting. Of a group that is several million in Pakistan, the numbers now are about 650 to 800,000, most of whom have fled for religious persecution. I wanted to show this form, which is the Pakistan Passport Application Form. It's kind of a remarkable document when I show it to people. This is a real form. Every Pakistani citizen has to sign this form under penalty of perjury to get their passport renewed. And if you look at it, it very clearly says that a declaration in case of Muslims, you have to say under penalty of perjury, whether you're in Pakistan or outside of Pakistan, if you're a Pakistani citizen to renew your passport, I, can, I am a Muslim and I believe in that definition of Article 260. I don't recognize any prophet after him. And I consider Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani, who is the founder of the Ahmadi community, to be an imposter nabi, a prophet, and also consider his followers, whether belonging to Lahori or Qadiani group, to be non-Muslim. It's the only way you get your passport renewed. Every Pakistani citizen has to sign it, including Ahmadis. And if an Ahmadi doesn't sign it, then their passport is stamped Ahmadi, which prevents them from going to take the pilgrimage to Hajj. So there's a lot I can say in terms of the international legal consequences of this, but I just have a few comments left in the short time I have. The spillover effects. You might think that the legal structures of discrimination in Pakistan are anomalous and unique. But while it is true that a constitutional definition of Muslim in Pakistan is like nothing else in the Islamic world, the question of Muslim identity as defined by the law is one that pervades many other Muslim-majority countries. I've advocated for the rights of prisoners of conscience in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Libya, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, and UAE, and traveled to, those, to these places. And the institutions and laws uh, have circumscribed the definition of Islam to apply in a static manner. Specifically, the conduct of deviant sex is criminalized. A country as populous as Indonesia, as moderate as Indonesia, has banned in 30 provinces the activities of Ahmadis. There's a blasphemy law in Indonesia as well. But in that country, there is only, are only six heavenly religions that are acknowledged, six main religions, and no deviance between those threads. In UAE, Article 319 of the national law criminalizes an act of preaching a religion other than Islam. I had the privilege of defending a prisoner of conscience on the border there in UAE, a fascinating case. And so what do I glean from all of this? And this is where I'm going to sort of end. 
The cycle that I see is that the politics of religious identity, you can say perhaps declaring someone to be non-Muslim, takfir, and all that goes with that, foments legal structures of discrimination. Then those structures often include criminalizing insults to Islam through blasphemy laws. And then the cause of preserving the integrity of a majority static view of Islam can then in turn lead to mob violence and vigilantism. And that violence can be organized into systematic terrorist activities. And this is precisely what has happened with the Taliban in Pakistan, with the Islamic Defenders Front in Indonesia, and even with Boko Haram in Nigeria. As I've stated elsewhere in an article I just wrote called How Blasphemy Laws Engender Terrorism, blasphemy laws are like oxygen for terrorist groups. And the preservation of a monolithic Islamic identity is a primary motivator for such groups. There's a lot that can be said in terms of recommendations and reform, and perhaps some of that I can save for the question and answer session, but I think my time is up. I just want to conclude with some questions that are above my pay grade that I think many in this room can answer better than I could ever answer. And that is we, we have to, as a body, ask the tough questions. Is group the fear ever justified? Can it, can it form the basis for a legal instrument as a matter of constitutional polity? What limits are there to define Islam, define Muslim? And can the punishment for blasphemy ever be death? Can the punishment for apostasy ever be death? These are the vexing questions, some of which I know Arafat, my colleague, will cover later this afternoon. I thank you for your time.